please turn or scroll to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We are bringing to a conclusion what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus first recorded his inaugural teaching. I have to say a few things uh, right up front, as many have said before me for years and years and years before I was even born. The teachings of Jesus, though they are wonderful and though they are gripping, they are not merely to be admired. They are to be obeyed. They are to be lived. These are not just fancy ideals that we like to talk about or put up little pictures in our house and say, isn't this wonderful? Not at all. As is very typical throughout Scripture, there's now a fork in the road. Jesus does this very well. There's a fork in the road. There's a choice to be made. Which path are you on? In which direction are you heading? This is a, a message, a truth, a command an appeal that is made all throughout scripture. Which way are you heading? On which path are you traveling? More on that in just a moment. Just to review where we have been in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the setting. Remember the background. John the Baptist did a good job of... Remember those... Those icebreakers up, I guess, in the north or the south, right, where there's, there's ice and you have an icebreaker that comes in, a ship that breaks the ice so others can come through. That's exactly what John the Baptist was. He played a role of coming out of the wilderness and shaking people and grabbing their attention. Oh, look at what John the Baptist did just a chapter or two prior to the Sermon on the Mount. John the Baptist was there baptizing Jews for a baptism of repentance. You can no longer claim your heritage. You cannot look back and say, well, we, Abraham is our father. We're good. No, it's all about your heart. And then the drama really begins when the Pharisees show up, when the religious establishment shows up. You see, their religion was an outward one. It was all about appearances. It was all about wearing a mask. It was all about pretending to be okay when, in fact, Jesus would point out, you're not. It would be about an outward show of righteousness that in God's sight is filthy rags. And so John the Baptist would light a match and throw it on the fire. When he looked at them before they said a word, he saw them coming and he went right after them. And essentially he said, you get down here as well. You take off your nice religious clothes and all that ornate stuff that you wear. You get down here and you get in the river and you get wet in this baptism of repentance because you are not right with God. As Jesus would say, remember, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are. Don't ever forget, Matthew bookcases everything very well for us. Towards the end of the gospel, Matthew chapter 23, it's not blessed are, it's cursed are you. Speaking to the Pharisees. 
Matthew 23 is one of the most blistering chapters you will read in the Bible. Jesus takes aim at the religious leaders. Remember, it's all about outward appearance. And he says, you make your followers twice the sons of hell as you are. You take them down the wrong path. So this is the Sermon on the Mount. A few things are very, very clear about what Jesus is teaching. Remember, this is the foundation of the entire New Testament. First of all, remember this. The gospel is for the whole person. This is not merely an intellectual exercise in which you check off and you believe certain things. You say, yes, I, I'm convinced that's true. Isn't that wonderful? I'm a Christian. And then your life bears no resemblance to the confession that you make. Not so. You cannot come to that conclusion if you read the Sermon on the Mount. You, you simply can't. Remember, as James says, the demons believe. Oh, they know who God is and they tremble. And faith that works is not faith, it's dead. A second truth that will emerge very clearly this morning is that the authenticity of our faith is shown, it is proven, it is showcased in adversity. We know that life is not easy. We say this very often about people in general. We see someone's true character when they face challenges, when they face heartache and difficulty and, and all manner of difficult things. And we always will say, well, when we face those difficult times, that's when the true character shows. Right? Don't show me a person who looks really great and life is going fine. They're just sailing through life. They might be a wonderful person, but it's, it's hard to tell if everything is going your way. What Jesus will teach us is that the authenticity and the strength and the vitality of our faith will become evident in the storms of life. In just a moment, I'm going to show a brief video testimony. I originally planned to have this towards the end of the service or shout out, but this brother's testimony is just right on par with this message this morning. But let's read Jesus' concluding statements in the Sermon on the Mount. John chapter, I mean Matthew, excuse me, chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Oh, the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew, and it beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Oh, when the rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against that house as well. 
and it fell. And great was the fall of it. What a powerful way to conclude his inaugural teaching. Well, as I mentioned, this past week we had our FCA uh, sports slash discipleship camp for kids, ages 8 to 12 or so. I had the privilege of serving with our head basketball coach. I've not met him before, never heard of him before. He was a tremendous basketball coach. I enjoyed every moment of serving with him. But I also appreciated how he wove into his training and instruction stories. And and he got the kids' attention. He gave them personal testimonies along the way. And he talked about other people. And he kind of brought it to life for them. But then on the last day, Friday... He sat them all down and he actually took a seat himself and he said, guys, I want to tell you my whole story. It was compelling. Now, he took about 20 minutes or so to kind of go into great detail with the kids. And we have a shortened version. It's about four or five minutes. But uh, this is my my new friend, Jim. And I just invite you to take this in and listen to what he's saying. Here's what really caught my attention. And here's why I asked him if he would share his testimony for us. You can see very clearly the fork in the road for him. You can see the path he was on and the path he's now on. So please uh, enjoy this testimony here. Well, hello, Derwood Bible. I want to thank you for listening to my story. It's been great to get to meet your pastor this week. Pastor Colin, it's been great to to get to, and he's asked me to share my testimony. So uh, my testimony really starts when I was about 10 years old. Uh, I was playing in the championship game of a peewee league in a small town in Pennsylvania where sports are very big. And I had a great game, and I scored a lot of points. And the next day, my picture was in the paper. And I really liked the glory that that brought me by having success as a 10-year-old. And so as a 10-year-old, I decided that this is what I was going to pursue in life was basketball. I love the glory and the, and the fame it brought me, if you will. And so fast forward now to my senior year in high school, and I'm good enough to be recruited by a lot of Division One schools, and I was able to take six of those official visits. And so I decided I was going to go visit schools in major cities. So I went to Boston for one school, two schools in New York City, a school in Philadelphia, and finally a school in Washington, D.C., And I ended up choosing the school in Washington, D.C. because the coach at the time was a really up-and-coming coach. His name was Gary Williams. Most of you, if you're basketball fans, you know who he is. And so I went to American University and played with some great players there. Three guys went on to get drafted by the NBA. And I was good enough to have a, a senior year where I was getting interest at the next level. Now, I wasn't good enough to play in the NBA, but I was getting interest from the D League. But I ended up playing in Europe. And that little... That little self-glory button that got turned on as a 10-year-old was really fueled in Europe. And I just engaged in every type of sin you could imagine a young guy with money could engage in. Well, I ended up coming back from Europe, and I stopped playing, and I'm here in America, and I decided something else has to fill that void in my life. And I decided it was going to be success, worldly success, defined by how big is your house and how nice is your car. And so that's what I pursued at that point in my life as a 28-year-old. So I started a business, and within a few years, the business was doing very good, and I did exactly what I set out to do. I built a large home right here in Montgomery County, bought the nicest SUV on the market, and I was supposed to be content and happy with that. But for the first time in my life, I realized that the things I had been pursuing were not delivering on the promise, and I went into a deep depression. 
And I didn't grow up in depression. I grew up in a happy house. This was something very foreign to me. And it got so bad that I couldn't even get out of bed. I ended up in the hospital. I was very sick. And when I got back from the hospital, I had a final straw, just something that was very discouraging happened. And for the first time in my life, I laid down on my basement floor. And with my face up against the ground, I said, God, if you're out there, I want to know. I don't want you to fix my business or my relationships or my health. I want you to fix me. And I knew something was wrong with me. So fast forward a couple weeks, I stumble into a church during worship. I'm looking at the guy in front of me and I'm thinking, that guy, last time I saw him, we were standing around a keg at American University. What's he doing in church? And also he's Jewish. So already I was judging people, but I realized he shouldn't have been in church. But he talked to me after the meeting and he realized that God was working in my heart. So he took me through a Bible program, a one-on-one Bible program. And the very first question I was asked was, who is Jesus? And my honest answer was, Jesus is Santa Claus for adults. But after diving into the Bible for the first time and really exploring the truths and the reality of the Christian faith, I really started to believe to the point where Romans 10.9 was true. I confessed with my heart that he was Lord. I believed in my, I confessed with my mouth that he was Lord and believed in my heart that he had risen from the dead. But I knew something else was still missing. And C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a quote that really affected me. And he said, Christianity is a statement which, if it's true, it's of infinite importance. If it's false, it's of no importance. The one thing Christianity cannot be is moderately important. And that really made me want to pursue God to the point where this has to be the most important news ever given to mankind. And after that, soon after that, I had a dramatic conversion. Uh, I, I felt an encounter with the Lord where all of the gospel became real and true to me. And that really then changed the trajectory of my life from where I was as a 10-year-old, and now it was going in an opposite direction. And I feel like my testimony, and this is what Pastor Colin was saying, really sort of reflects what you're going through in the Sermon on the Mount. I was building my house on sand, and when the storm came, it crumbled, and it was a terrible mess that I made. Um, but also, as the Sermon on the Mount starts, he, uh, those who are contrite in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Um, and so that's been my exact experience. So thank you, church, for listening to my testimony, and may God bless your, the rest of your study on the Sermon on the Mount. Amen. I told him not to worry about the time, but you could tell he was rushing himself. Uh, but there we go. Um, So keep his story in mind as we continue in the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at the, keep in mind what Jesus said the last few weeks. This is very important. What's stopping people from entering the kingdom? What's stopping people from being a part of God's kingdom? From being born again? It's very arresting what Jesus has to say. He paints a picture, and I know I've said this before, but it's worth us remembering this. It is exactly opposite to what you will hear in culture. Jesus said, wide is the road, broad is the road, the path, and broad is the gate that leads to destruction. It's the easy one. It's the natural one. It's the one that catches your eye. It's the one that makes sense. To you. Well, I'm going to go on this one because everyone seems to be very happy about going down this way. But Jesus says it leads to destruction. Conversely, he said, Narrow, narrow is the path, narrow is the gate that leads to life, 
and few they be that find it. Oh, but then he takes it just a little bit deeper. He said, on that path, perhaps at the fork of the road, and on that path that is wide and inviting and popular and that leads to destruction, he says, there are many, many, many false prophets. There are many ideologies. There are many worldly philosophies that would take you away, that would take your focus off of Christ, that would prevent you from seeing him, from seeing the gospel of grace clearly. Oh, it's so inviting. They're all inviting you to go this way. But Jesus was not finished. He said, finally, there is self-deception. And surely this is the aspect that has to hit home so strongly for his listeners. He said, there will be many on that day saying, Lord, Lord. That's the term of affection and friendship. You know, Lord, it's me. I'm here. Let me in. What Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Forget about you and your confession and knowing me. I never knew you. Depart. It's over. That's a very arresting passage. And so Jesus' words must be taken seriously and in a sober mindset. His concluding illustration is very powerful. He says there's two houses being built. They face the same circumstances. And they have a very different outcome. What is he speaking to? You see, I imagine, I'm inferring this, I imagine the two houses were likely near each other. For all we know, the two houses looked very, very similar. Maybe the same style. We don't know. There's no, that's actually irrelevant to what Jesus is saying because he doesn't even speak to it. These two houses, well, they face the same storms. The floods come, the winds beat, and the rain comes down. That's an analogy for life. Life is not easy. Jesus prepared us for that. But you see, the outcome of the two houses are diametrically opposite. One withstands and one collapses. And not barely collapsing. It it is a colossal fail, he says. Great was the fall of that house. Saints, what is the point of what Jesus is speaking to? There is one aspect that is different. And that is the foundation. It is what the houses are built upon. One had a solid, a sturdy foundation. And the other did not. 
Perhaps the other builder was in a haste and he didn't really care. He wasn't really discerning and thinking through what it means to plan and to build a house. Maybe he did it in a hurry. Maybe, maybe this builder, he just wasn't interested in what people say is common sense when it comes to building a house or a structure. You've got to have a firm foundation. You've got to have a level foundation. Well, that didn't concern this individual. And so when the tests came, the house, the structure could not withstand or sustain the adversity that it was facing. Saints, the authenticity of faith is shown in adversity. Notice Jesus, of course, has words to say in general about what you believe. But remember, the correlation is to the condition of your heart. And that's why he immediately points to, well, what does your life look like? What does it look like? I don't have a slide for this, but I'd like you to turn or scroll if you have your Bibles or just listen as I read 1 Peter chapter 2. I was thinking about this driving in. This idea of a cornerstone, of a foundation. I want you to see how this is amplified throughout the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm just going to read it beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, Christ, a living stone rejected by men. Don't ever forget that. It's what Jesus is preparing you for in Matthew 7. Rejected by men. You're not going to find the message of Jesus Christ plastered throughout society. But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. He says, you yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture. Here's the Old Testament speaking of Christ. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a foundation that is chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. Now, remember, I've highlighted over the last number of years, verses 9 to 11, so let's see it in its context. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, A holy nation, a people for his own possessions. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, God, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your mission statement. Don't stop talking about Jesus and pointing other people to him. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Where in that statement is there, is there room for legalism or for pride or for judging other people with a judgy spirit? I know full well I'm a sinner. And I thank God for the grace of God in my life. 
I know full well that I cast myself upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. There is no time in the day for me to have a judgmental attitude and look down my nose at other people. But I digress. I loved this past week. Coach Lutz, if we put up this next, this next picture, he took us all to the very foundations of playing basketball. Now, I grew up, I, my story is I wanted to play football. I wound up uh, turning towards basketball because my mom noted I was getting tall. And, uh, and I played in a few little leagues. I had some instruction, but largely I just loved to play. I, there was a court right by our house. I would play endlessly, as I said last week, rain, snow, wind. It made no difference. That's where I was. Even when I should have been doing my homework, and my mom can tell you lots of stories about that as well. But you see, Jim was semi-pro. As I watched and listened to Jim, I realized there's so much that I had never been taught when I was young. I w- it was exciting for me to go back to these fundamentals that I did not even know existed. Oh, he did such a good job with them. And this is what Jesus is doing with us in the Sermon on the Mount. He's taking us right to the very foundation. Build your life on the truth of Christ. There's a short video, one of his workouts. We call this the resistance dribble. In fact, we can play that right now. Hope you enjoyed the slow-mo that I added in there for for effect. (laughs) Now, please tell me, if you are dribbling the ball and your defender literally falls all over you and tries to push you back, what is that called? A foul, right? So what he was doing was preparing them for something they're really not going to face. But he knows that adversity brings out the best. You can put this across the board in any discipline, sports or otherwise, right? He was adding an element of resistance because that's where we train the best. Just this week, I randomly came across this picture I had saved. This is the inside of my parents' Bible. You can read it for yourselves. This was uh, gifted to my mom and dad on their wedding day. I had the joy of officiating Ashley's wedding. My mom had the joy of her dad officiating their wedding as well. But notice what they say. God's richest blessing and future happiness upon your lives, your joint lives together. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You're building a new home. You're establishing a new home. It was a timely reminder. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's look at that in a little bit broader context. This is Joshua chapter 24. Remember, there was a fork in the road. 
He stands up and he talks to God's people. He says, listen, there's a larger context. I'm just reading one verse. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, listen, choose this day whom you will serve. There's a fork in the road. You make your choice. Who are you going to serve? I don't care about your doctrinal statement, what you tell me you believe. I'm asking you, who are you going to serve? Remember, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do anything I say? He says, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You see, what he was reminding them was this. There are false gods with a lowercase g all around you and friends that is your lived experience as well society does not exactly build you up in your most holy faith so he says listen god's given you this land there are false lowercase gods here and all around who are you going to serve Well, here's his conclusion. As for me and my house, I can speak for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. This literally is the story of the entire Old Testament. One generation after another, the Lord raises up a prophet and says, guys, who are you going to serve? Who's it going to be? How many times were they reeling them back saying, you have been so distracted and so disobedient? Jeremiah chapter 6. Oh, I love this one. Thus, verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is. And walk in it and find rest for your souls. Who else said that? Who said that? You will find rest for your soul. That's Jesus, Matthew 11, verse 28, I think. Come to me, all of you who are heavy burdened. I will give you, I'm the only one. I will give you rest for your soul but what is the message of jeremiah walk in it don't talk about it walk it out it's coming from here and here oh but they say nah nope we found something better (coughs) babylon but we will not walk in it they say I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, nah, not interested. That's the Old Testament story. One generation after another, after another, after another. Finally, the Assyrian exile, and then also the Babylonian exile. But saints, this fork in the road, it runs all the way through the entirety of God's word. I'll show you the first one. In the book of Acts. Well, we're only two chapters in. 
This is the first evangelistic sermon ever preached or at least recorded. It's Peter. We love Peter. We love him because we can relate with him. He would put his foot in his mouth endlessly with Jesus. Who was it? Who was the one when Jesus first disclosed to his followers, his disciples, that he was going to suffer and die and rise again? Well, who was the first one to rebuff him? It's hilarious. Peter said, stop it. What are you talking about? That's not the story. The story is you're going to conquer the Romans and we're going to have a happy life. That was Peter. Oh, but Peter, God got his attention. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And oh, you you really should review and and read Acts chapter 2 because Peter makes it, it is scripture rich. He brings them to attention and he shows them how God had spoken about the suffering and the resurrection of the Christ. But here's what I want you to see. Verse 40. With many other words. This was not a short sermon. Peter, he bore witness and continued to exhort them. Saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. This, my friends, is the message from God. Each and every single generation without exception. Follow God. Remove yourself from the wickedness that is around you. This is not a half-hearted message. Peter, as a dying man, is preaching to dying men, saying, save yourselves. He is the only way. There's an urgency to what Peter is saying, and that is the urgency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the best and most beautiful news that anyone could ever hear. But it will be upon which you are judged. You will either die and stand before God in your own righteousness, which is non-existent, or you will stand in the perfect righteousness of the one who said in the Sermon on the Mount, I've come to fulfill. I will live the law. I will keep the law to a T. And then through my continued obedience, I will become a curse. Although the law says that I am blessed, I will swap that out and I will become a curse. On the tree, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him only through faith in the person and in the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we bring this to exactly what Jesus is telling us this morning. Upon what are you building? Hanging out in a, in a repair shop doesn't make you a car. Coming to church does not make you a Christian. It's likely a good part of it and should be a part of a Christian's life, but that's not what makes you a Christian. It's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is. 
Remember his, his opening words. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That initial step, that entrance is marked by a humbling. Because you come face to face with your own sin. And you realize that you cannot save yourself. You cannot fix your own problem. And therefore there's a humbling and you see the one on the cross who took your sins upon himself. It's beautiful. It's powerful. And it's uncomplicated. Christ died for sinners. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The question this morning, is Jesus Christ your Savior and Lord? That's where we begin. That's the entryway. Jesus said it over and over again. I am the gate. I'm the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Peter bore that out. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. None. None. Because he is the Son of God. Now I want to show you some cake. I take you back to our award ceremony right out here on Wednesday. You see how I just worked cake into a sermon? This is obviously congratulations for your hard work. Because these kids, with their with help at home, probably some prodding, engaged the word of God. Jesus said, you are my disciples indeed if you abide in my word. That's where God's truth is. It's why I appreciate this ministry and it's why I choose to be a part of it. Because it helps kids build a sure foundation in their lives. Next picture. Oh, there they are getting their awards. Next picture, sorry. I take you back to uh, the FCA camp. Do we have another picture of FCA? Maybe not. So the reason why I have highlighted these, these two ministries, as I said before, is because they do such a wonderful job of showing people who Christ truly is and helping them to grow and to walk with him. I take you for our last verse to Second Peter chapter 3. After Coach gave his testimony on Friday, he asked me just to kind of tie it all up. And I said, well, here's a verse that is amazing, and it's one that you should really consider. Remember everything I just told you about Peter, why we love him so much. Peter now, this is his second letter, his final letter. You might know what history tells us about Peter. Remember, Peter's the guy who told Christ he'd die for him. He'd do anything for him. He was passionate. He was all in. And then a little kid says, don't you you belong to Jesus? I've never heard of him. Denies him. That's Peter. 
But you see, Peter ultimately would die for his testimony of Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit. History tells us that they said, fine, Peter. We're going to crucify you. Just as they did Jesus. You love him so much. You're so happy about him. You think he's the real deal? Let's go put this to the test. Peter said, nah, you're not going to crucify me. He said, if I'm going to die for my Savior, I am not worthy to die in the way that he did. Take your little cross over there and you flip it around. You turn it upside down. And that's how, G- that's how Peter died. Crucified upside down. Perish the thought in his mind that he would die the same death that his Lord did because he was not worthy of that. Here are his parting words. But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Saints, grow. Grow. Mature. That foundation, that entryway, the foundation is upon the rock of Jesus Christ. It is that narrow way, the narrow gate. Now grow in that. Don't become lazy. Don't be distracted. Keep growing. But notice what he says. You grow in the grace of Christ. Grace is beautiful and grace is freeing. Titus tells us that grace will train us in godliness. It will teach us and train us to say no to sin. That's what grace is. It is freeing. It will keep you where you need to go. He says you grow in that. And you grow in the knowledge and the experiential knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we commend to you, we'll wrap things up in the next week or two on the Sermon on the Mount. We commend to you this morning, Jesus' application of his own words. Jesus' teaching is not to be admired and just thought about, is to be obeyed and to be implemented. Let's pray together this morning. Well, we have taken a number of months to go through this tremendous preaching of Jesus. If you've joined us halfway or if you've missed a lot of the messages, I really commend to you to read Matthew 5 to 7 carefully, prayerfully, paying attention to detail. We love to worship the Lord. We're so thankful for the joy of the Lord because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Oh, but saints, life will come at you hard. You have not been promised an easy life. But that's why scripture says rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again. Rejoice. 
If you are here this morning or watching online or watching later on, if you have never put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Do not push it another day. There is a fork in the road. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. He who believes in me will pass from death to life. Have you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercies and your grace. Thank you so much for your kindness and your faithfulness to us. Thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that Christ indeed would truly be formed within us. That Christ would be visible to those around us. Oh Lord, it is so easy to be discouraged, to be distracted, to be tempted, to fall into temptation. Help us to continue to grow in you. And not to become stagnant. Not to be overtaken by the philosophies and the worldly ideologies that surround us at every point. Help us to base ourselves, to have confidence in the word of God. To believe it on every point. And to build our lives upon it, upon Christ. To grow in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.